This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Russian filmmaker Ilya Nyshuler is redefining the action film this weekend with the Bob Odenkirk Universal title Nobody. He's here today to talk about his career and that film on Crew Call. First of all, tell us about yourself, breaking into filmmaking, where you went to, did you go to film school, everything. Tell us about the beginning. Sure. Um... Okay, I'll try to keep this as compact as possible. Um, so back in the eighties, um, when I was um, when I was a little boy, my dad my dad was a paramedic. He was an EMT and occasionally doubled as, as a driver for the ambulances. His first business in the Soviet Union, because we didn't have official VHS tapes or American movies, uh, his first business was pirate tapes. And um, we lived in a little uh, we had a one room apartment in Moscow. And we had, you know, floor to ceiling boxes of tapes and all sorts of movies. There'd be like three movies on a tape, there'd be four movies on a tape, there'd be a movie with half of it missing. It would be mixed with like Disney, then Playboy, Playmate of the Year, it would be all over the place. And uh, my parents never censored me. They just, my mom loved movies. And we, I just watched, they were both, she was a surgeon, he was a paramedic, so they'd be at a house for, you know, uh, a long, long time. And I would just, you know, watch, watch, watch everything. And um, I think I was only told don't watch erotica and the rest is, you know, fair game. So I'd watch all these horror movies and action films and I love them. Um, and I, I was talking to my mother when I was, I think she says it's seven. I, I think it's a little later, but we're watching Goldfinger. And that's when I was like, who does this? Can you just tell me who does this? And she's like, well, there's the, 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 the actors, there's the, the guy who holds the camera. We didn't know what a producer was back there in the eighties, right? There's no such term in Russian Soviet cinema. So, um, the state paid for everything. Um, and so she, but she, she was a bit, who, who, like, who does this? Who's the, is there someone, how does it work? And she's like, well, there's the, this guy called the director. I'm like, ah, that's what I want to do. And it took a little bit of time because uh, I got distracted along the way by music and video games, unfortunately, or fortunately, I had a good time. Uh, I lived in England from eight to 14. Uh, I was very lucky. I had a really great school. Um, because my dad's business out of tapes became a bunch of other stuff. And um, he sent me to England, uh, very fortunate, learned English, uh, fell in love with England, um, came back to Russia. My dad went bankrupt. I came back to Russia. I went to a, a regular school, got into, my grades were horrible. I was, I was into punk rock and skateboarding. I went to, I always hoped I could go to a really good American or English film school. I wanted to go to Tisch or to the, London Film Institute, uh, London School of Film, I think, I forget by now, but um, couldn't get any of those because I didn't finish school at all. I was too busy playing punk rock and just hanging out, skating, not very smart. So I went to a very mediocre best TV and radio slash film institute in Moscow, dropped out after two years because they started going to TV. So I said, no, I don't want to, I don't care about TV or live television. So I tried to get into Tish. I got into Tish. My mom got sick and I couldn't go. Well, I could, but I thought, 
I don't think she has that much time left, so I didn't go. Started working on film sets um, fairly early. I think my first job was I was 17. I was bringing coffee to a to a director in a, in a very average Where TV was production. Where was this? In Russia? Film this is all Moscow. I, okay. Yeah, film sets all in Moscow from a young age. I got very lucky in the sense that Roland Jaffe, the British director, who I'm sure you, uh, yeah, The Killing Fields and um, The Mission, there was a point in time when he was doing movies all over the world. Uh, there weren't the best movies, but you know he he's a very smart man, and he come he came to Russia two, two, for two movies in a row. He made a movie with Alicia Cuthbert called Captivity, uh, which was my first foray into seeing how you know true professionals from the West work. There was a great DP, Daniel Pearl, it was Roland Jaffe. Um, I was the clapperboard dude over there. That was fantastic. Uh, and then he came back a little bit later and he was doing a horrible Russian produced movie. Just, it was useless. I think everybody knew, but I saw what he did to inspire us all into believing that this might be actually much better than what we anticipated. And that's a lot of lessons I learned from that man. Uh, but uh, the second time around, I was his personal assistant. And I was a translator. So I got to see and work on all the aspects. And, you know, he'd be the kind of guy he called me at 4 a.m. and say, look, the set's look, not looking very good. Can we get some Banksy style uh, tags and put it all over stencil art, put it all over. And I, you know, call my friends and, you know, we run in and, you know, by the time Joffy would arrive on set at 9 a.m., the place would be decorated. He'd be like, good job, Billy. And as a, uh, it's not in this room, but uh, I, you know, I enjoyed working so much with that guy that, uh, and I did my best and at the end. Uh, he's like, Ilya, yeah, fucking hard worker. Now I want you to look at all this furniture that we brought from India for this movie and pick whatever you like the best. I remember looking, there was like a huge mirror worth like 10 grand and all these things. And I was like, all right, I don't want anything that's too big and it's kind of weird. So I, I took a little bench worth like a grand and that bench is still with me. It's a beautiful Indian bench. And that's my memory of a guy who I respect so much who just said, that's for you, you deserved it. So um, again, you know, the best film school of all time. Uh, and from then on, it was just music videos, uh, commercials, which weren't that great in the beginning. Uh, music videos I did for my band, Biting Elbows. Uh, Good music videos. Nobody in Russia was doing anything of that kind, but I was getting 30,000 hits on YouTube, 40,000. It was pretty bad. My claim to fame was at a time that I'm sure you heard of Navalny, the guy who's now in, uh, in prison. He, the only time he ever posted anything in his blog was our first music video. And I woke up with a bunch of my friends saying, oh shit, dude, you gotta check it out. It's amazing. So that was, uh, that was kind of interesting. And then I made the first person music videos, which uh, the first one got like 3 million. I got my first contract, uh, first contact with the West. I had a guy from uh, one of the big agencies write to me and say, oh, I don't know if you're going to be any good, but let's start talking. So he started sending me little scripts just to get my the taste for, for stuff. That was awesome. Um, and then a year later, I released Bad Motherfucker. This was 2013, March 18th. It's exactly eight years to this day, actually. Today's March 18th. Uh, and today's actually the day that our movie, Nobody Came Out in Russia. We have opening weekend start now so it's kind of numbers are weird not into that but i kind of am when it does happen like this and my soon as that motherfucker happened i hope i'm not going into too much detail no you're great Keep okay thank you. sorry going. i just please yeah sorry um and um and then i got a call from timor the same night timor bikman beta um director you know he's a huge russian director for us you know he did the night watch the day watch and went to america did wanted and amongst a lot of other stuff and he just said let's make let's make this first person thing happen. Let's make a feature out of it. I was like, Timor, no, because I'm, I'm with all due respect, I, I thank you so much, but I want to do a slightly more elevated genre of movies. You know, the stuff I've been working on writing and those projects that nobody gave a shit about when I was writing them back home. I was meeting producers. They're like, no, this is not right. This, you know, they were just producers I didn't really much respect. I remember my friend, my producer and everything, Katya Kananyenka, 
who produced hardcore with me, she ultimately, she said, Ilya, which producer would you listen to? I said, well, if Timor would get in touch, I'd listen to him because at least I know exactly that he knows what he's doing. So I tried to not do the first film, the action movie, but Timor said a wonderful thing. He said, he asked a question which changed my life. He said, do you or do you not want to see a great first person action film in a theater? And I said, I would. He's like, we well, should go make it. And I was like, ah, good point. So that was the next three and a half years of my life. Hardcore Henry was, you know, they took, we started and we shook hands in April the 1st, 2013. It came out April 8, 2016. It was three years. It's not how you do a movie because pretty much uh, it was just, there was no plan. There was no release date. There was, it was an experiment. It took a long time because that was the case. Um, and after Hardcore Henry came out, uh, we did the premiere at TIFF. Uh, SDX bought it for a lot of money. Uh, I became a big deal over here in Russia. Um, I was looking for a next movie. It, Hardcore Henry did not do the numbers anybody was hoping for. I kind of always felt it's such a niche film that I was excited that SDX believed in it. And I'm thankful to them. They you know, gave me a little bit more money to, to you know, finance all the CGF and CGI effects. It was very kind of them. Um, it, it came out, did not do the numbers anybody wanted. It, you know, I know that STX are ultimately happy with it, but I think they were all hoping for more. With 3,000 screens, you'd ex I remember seeing that we were the fifth biggest drop-off for the second week in American history. Well, I mean, we're in the record books for something, guys. Um, I thought it was cool. Let me ask you, so you, you, pro you, how did you get the financing together for Hardcore? So it was originally meant to be a $2 million movie. Uh, Timor uh, gave a large chunk of it. And then there were several uh, Russian non-film related investors who, and they were excited by it. And then how did you get Tim Roth and Haley Bennett on board? Was that a feat? Um, with Haley, we just, we just did a, we had a casting. We had, I think it was John McLary in, um, in LA who uh, was our casting director. He, we looked at, uh, we just kind of like, it was interesting because to me it was, a, it was a choice between uh, Haley Bennett, who we all liked, and uh, my wife, who has been an actress for a long time, and she did great auditions. And I was just so hesitant to shoot my wife in the first film. You know that cliche of a director, first time director, he's like, oh, I'll put my wife in it and we'll get all our friends. And, and I was like, I told my wife, I'm like, Dasha, I'm so sorry. Uh, you're going you're gonna to have a fun time doing the score. She's a composer. She, at this point, she, she switched. I said, that's it. We, I was too terrified. Because I wasn't sure if the movie's going to be good. I didn't want to be the guy who does that, you know, cliche thing. Um, we loved Haley. Uh, she was great. She flew out. Uh, Tim Roth happened because I wrote a script um, prior to the whole first person thing. I wrote a script called The Russian about a CIA operative in Russia in the Soviet Union. And I wrote it with a friend of mine for Tim Roth, not knowing Tim Roth, not knowing a single person in America. We just thought this would be an amazing movie we can do in Russia with Tim Roth. Why not? Let's dream big. And when I was going around all the agencies, they were like, do you, do you want to meet anybody? This was the tour, the first tour when I was kind of shocked at how everybody, you know, I've read enough books about Hollywood to know that not everything is as exciting and real as it appears. And the guys said, what do you want, kid? You're going to have a great future. We love the music video. And I was thinking, I know I'm going to be a good director, but how do you know that? You've seen a music video. It doesn't prove anything. So I, the only person I wanted to speak to was Tim Roth. And they organized a meeting and I went to his place in LA and we sat by the pool and he was in, he said, look, how old are you? And I said, 29. He said, well, enjoy it. I came out to LA 29 and I got Reservoir Dogs. That was my big moment. So enjoy it right now and right here and now. And I did. And he said, I told him about the script. I said, I don't know if we'll ever get a chance to make it. And he said, well, great. But whatever you do now, if you, if you, you know, want me to pop up in it, just keep me in mind. I'd love to. 
And I was like, I, I will make sure to keep that in mind. In fact, it'd be hard to forget. So when we started doing Henry and we got uh, Charlotte Copley signed on and Haley Bennett and Daniela Kozlovsky, who's, you know, a huge Russian star, uh, the role of the father came up in the script and Timur and I were talking. It was a mother first and Timur said, you know, we don't have enough can't change what was it, the logic i think suggests something i can't remember the exact phrasing the point is we need to have one more man at the end because there was a switch from the good woman to the to the evil villainous and he said let's not go to the mother let's go to the dad and i was like who should we get as the dad and he's like yeah i'll think about it and i was like well tim roth offered you know this was at this point it was two years before so i wrote him and we'd occasionally talk and he'd be very cool his emails he'd be like hey how's that russian script looking is it ever going to happen i'm like i don't know but we are doing this hardcore thing and if you're still up for it we'd love to have you and we shot him in LA by uh, by uh, by Sony Studios somewhere, and uh, he was fantastic. The only question he asked was, he said, "I'm not sure about one line and what accent do you want to use?" And that's it. And we did ten takes, and I, it was great after the third one. But I was like, "Well, we have Tim Roth. Let's get make sure we have more. He has time, and he's not in a rush." And it was a tremendous experience. I'm super thankful for Tim. And in fact, I'm pissed that we couldn't get a role for him. Nobody, there was just no perfect part for him, but I can't wait to work with him again because I certainly feel like I owe him one for that. Now the movie comes out, Yeah. Uh, hardcore comes out, isn't successful. What are you mm -hmm. feeling? I mean, uh, are you like, oh no. I mean, what happened? No. No, I, I always knew, and I talked with Charlotte about this. I said, when we, we did Toronto and we had great Rotten Tomatoes, we had like a 90 something at first. I said, Charlotte, I reminded him when we were shooting, I said, look, this is going to be a 50. And he's like, why? It's going to be great. I'm like, it is going to be great, but it's going to be a love it or hate it movie. You will not be able to have a neutral opinion on it. And those movies never get high marks. It just doesn't happen. And the fact is I made Hardcore Henry for a 15 year old me. And I, 15 year old me would have loved that movie to death. And I'm incredibly proud of it. I think there's lots of flaws, but the fact is we took something that really sh hasn't been done and made something watchable and made it really, you know, the fact that after it didn't do well in theaters, but I know from what happens on Twitter, uh, how well it does when it does Netflix, it does streaming everywhere in the world. And I have people writing to me saying, I've seen this movie seven times in the theaters. Now, if that isn't a love it or hate it movie, a definition of a cult classic, then, you know, and what is so I always understood that sure when we got the first numbers and then and the guys were sending me the tracking saying this is on track to do John Wick numbers and I was thinking but is it though I mean I understand how to sell and buy John Wick how do you sell a first person film that is also a comedy it's also really violent I remember I was very proud when we got the MPA rating it was saying rated R for non-stop bloody brutal violence drug use and non-stop swearing and I was thinking I'm very proud of myself again a 50 year old me would have been like well done Ilya but in terms of being upset with it, uh, you know, slightly disappointed. Everybody dreams that that's a lottery ticket that all the doors will open, but it was the most incredible experience of my life by that point. Uh, I learned a lot. I had a lot of fun. It was a lot, a lot of hard work. And ultimately a lot of people really loved the movie. So, you know, and without it, I wouldn't be on nobody. So it's, uh, everything happens for a reason, I guess. Or I'd like to call myself like that. How does nobody come to you? Like who had, did, did Odenkirk uh, and his wife, who's manager, have, have this script and were they looking for directors or did Derek come to you with the script? Uh, I think a year before I got the script, I was talking to Mike Sipson, my agent, WME. And uh, I, thank God, for, you know, Mike was uh, always incredibly kind. 
he always said it's easy to be an agent of someone you know who's who's hot and doing well but i'll be there for you when things aren't that great and he was i'm super thankful he i was talking they were sending scripts my way and i wasn't liking the stuff i just you know if i'm going to invest two or three years of my life and i'm going to work in it that's the only thing i'm going to focus on i want to make sure that i'm excited by it every goddamn day because it is going to be difficult etc and i told mike i said if it's an american film uh studio or not the second feature should be in an ideal world, and there's a lot of boxes to tick, but it'd be great to have a comedian with a shotgun playing against type. It'd be great if it's uh, not too high of a budget so we can have some freedom with it, but still marketable. And it would be fantastic if it's an action film that 8711 would do the action. So it's kind of, you know, a year later or maybe nine months later, I get the script and it says, ask and you shall receive. And it says, Bobo Odenkirk, Derek Kolstad, 8711 are producing. It was 87 North ultimately, but at that point it was 8711. And it was STX because uh, Bob had this situation that someone broke into his house. It was a very fairly traumatizing, I suspect, or I don't suspect, I know, moment in his, in, in, his, in his life. And the idea of someone who reserves and holds back from fighting someone who he can take down as a home intruder, it stayed with him. And he kept talking to Mark Provisero, one of the producers, his producing partner. And Mark would occasionally be like, Bob, what about that thing? You, you know, let's, let's keep talking about it. And Bob, like, oh, it's a great idea. And at a certain point, they met with Braden Aftergood, who was also one of our producers. And they said, we feel like this can work. We feel like this can work as Bob is an action guy. And um, they went to writers. I'm not sure uh, who they were. Um, I never got their names in good because I wouldn't mention them anyway, I guess. And they did a draft that was a little too comedic. Uh, at that point, Bob said, or Mark uh, said, well, we wanted to be more John Wickian. And at that point, Braden said, well, I think we should go to the guy. And they went to Derek. And, you know, Derek loves Bob. And Derek is, a, you know, just a great human being. He they got to deal with STX. Derek wrote the script. And once I had the draft they were happy with, that's the draft I got. I wrote it the same night. And very rarely do I get excited by, by scripts. And I, I said, I'd love to talk to anybody about this. I've gotten a call with Bob. And I think the reason I got the movie is because on the first call with Bob, you know, a horrible landline collect, collect connection with, you know, four producers on the phone. Uh, I'm super nervous because I really wanted to make this work. And I said, Bob, I think, now correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm sorry if I am, but I think this movie is about a guy who is addicted to violence. And it may be packaged as a John Wick homage and sort of retreat, but it really is much more than that. And that's the angle. That's the angle. And uh, Bob said, you know, we never thought about it that way, but it makes a lot of sense. Why don't you fly out to LA and we'll talk to the studio. So I did this little 20 page presentation, uh, super nervous, fly out to STX. To who? To, to STX? It was at that point, it was an STX film. Yeah. Uh, I fly out. Uh, I'm not going into too much detail here. Right? No, right? no, I love this. Go. Yeah, okay. keep going. Uh, thank you. I, um, I flew out and I did a presentation and it was like 20, 25 pages and they stopped me on page 15 and they said, all right, that's enough. We get it. Uh, thank you. And I go, okay. So, you know, I, I, uh, I go home to the hotel and I get a call the same night saying it's yours. And I was like, ah, interesting. So, and that was in 2018. We we're supposed to shoot in 20, uh, in shoot, we we're supposed to shoot in the fall of 2018, except, um, STX at that point passed. Uh, you have to ask them why. I, su I, I suspect I know the answer, but I don't want to, you know, spitball for other people. So um, I went home. I'm so happy that as I flew out to shoot the movie the first time, I didn't tell anybody. Like my wife knew, and my dad knew. That's it. I didn't. I, you know, I, I made a point never to talk about things that are 
might happen or about to happen, even though it's a contract, still, I just, you know, yeah. not because of superstition, just because you never know. And I flew back, uh, did a few music videos, a few commercials, went back to writing scripts and talking about how we're going to get the stuff we had before. Because uh, um, I worked before nobody, I, I had, you know, three scripts that I'm very happy with that one day hopefully will come to fruition. And I get a call from uh, Kelly McCormick and says, Ilya, I think nobody's going to happen. I'm like, oh yeah? And she says, yeah, I think we're going to make it with Universal. So if you're still down, we'd love to have you. And I was like, well, I'd love to, to be there. And said, all right, it's a date, uh, September. Put it in your uh, schedule. And I did. And, uh, you know, here we are two years later talking about it. And it's a pretty good movie. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now, do they have Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad in Russia? Of course. Of course. What we're... Was there any concern uh, about duplicating? Like, t- tell me about taking Bob Odenkirk up a level because this is a Bob Odenkirk we have never seen before. Um, that's my first uh, gush about the movie. I have more gushes, but tell me about dealing with that. Tell me about um, because. You know, on one level, it's easy to see him in this. It's mm-hmm. because he's already established this type of archetype. But on another level, who the hell knew he could do this? He did, and I did, and the producers and the studios did. We, you know, the first time I met Bob in the, in the States, and we were at his office, and we met with Derek. Uh, Derek said a wonderful thing. I'm super thankful for it all these years later, he said, Ilya, love your work. Best idea wins, man. And I was like, it's nice of you to say it, seeing as, uh, you know, you're the guy who gets paid a lot of money and is pretty sought after. Uh, And that's how we did the film. We sat down with Bob and Derek and we reworked that script to what it is today. And we had time because we got put off the first time in 2018. We had a lot of time to discuss. Uh, We, countless hours of discussions with Bob about what what we expect from this character, how he's going to be, he's not going to be a Terminator. He's going to be a wounded, uh, hurt guy. He's going to have a lot of inner conflict, which is one of the most special things about this movie is that it's it's carefully subverses the expectation, subverts sorry the expectations of, you know, I've had a past. I don't want to come back to it, but I have to. Whereas in this movie, I have a past. I don't have to come back to it, but I want to, and that's what I said, this is the, this is the appeal. This is what makes it different. This is why if we do this right, this will be special. And this, by that point, Bob is already training. So it's a twofold answer. One is that we understood the character perfectly and I knew exactly where we wanted to take him. And I knew exactly what he's going to be doing, how we're going to make him as badass as possible. And I was so thankful, you know, for Bob, it's a, it's a big, it's a big step. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hard, scary step to go into this completely different genre a completely different type of character and sell this action hero persona for me it's my first american movie you know for pavel the dp it's his first studio film so a lot of people had you know high stakes so um full focus and a lot of work 
And because Bob trained so hard, you know, he lost weight. He, at the age of 55, he started going fully into the gym with, you know, a, a real, a real hardcore uh, mindset of this is, he never said, you know, we discussed about, I said, look, it'd be great if we, do, if we avoid shaky cam, if we make it very sort of calm and let the action speak for itself without trying to help it with, you know, uh, erratic movements, uh, minimal uh, stunt doubles, if, if at all. And Bob was game and he made, you know, as much, I love to take as much credit as possible, but it, it is a combination of these things. It's Bob working his ass off for two years and deciding he's not going to do the thing where, you know, just the easy path of least resistance type crap, which is, you know, it's fine to make a movie with a star who doesn't want to put all in the work. It's okay. We see it all the time. We love those movies. Not a problem. But when you have that extra step, it just makes it extra special. And that's, if, you know, if we're making a movie, if I'm making a movie, there's no reason for me to make a film that's okay. I'm going to give it my best and, and hopefully something will, uh, like my dad used to tell me when I was a kid, he said, you aim for the moon, you'll get out to the stratosphere. And that stuck with me that we're always going to be aiming for the moon. And sometimes we'll actually not crash land there. Um, so when it came to the shooting, uh, to production, I just made sure that every single time where we can make Bob cooler, we would do that. And there's always tiny little things. It's, for example, when remember when he's in the trunk and he uses a fire extinguisher, and you know he's got the pin in his mouth. He spits that pin out in a cool way before he uses it. When he instead of smashing the bat against the guy's face, he breaks it against his leg before he pokes it. Does the Dracula thing with it. It's always little elements that make me want to just look at him and be like, "Damn, that's a cool guy." That's just that is an action that I believe it fully. So a lot of work was invested in that, but it would have been so. Um, I don't want to say so much less, but it would have been less. If Bob, might, like, if, no, it's fully fair to say, it would be much less had Bob not put in the incredible amount of work. And I remember talking to people, you know, who made a lot of movies in the, in the states who were on on this uh, on this movie, and they said, you got to, you know, value this moment because you, you very rarely do you get a star that does this this amount of prep. Uh, and I remember we were shooting the bus fight. That was the first action scene we did. And it was like middle of week two, I believe. Oh, end of week two. It was a Friday night, and Bob was nervous. It's the first, this is, you know, cause he's surrounded by all these real tough guys and, you know, we're doing this, this, this serious thing and it's a big step. And I'm not, because I've seen it previous. I know we, we you know, I visited him back in 2018 when he was just starting. I remember looking at him sweaty and tired and, you know, Keanu Reeves is in the same room, just in a bigger hole doing the, you know, one versus 12 John Wick three prep. And it's looking incredible as just as you'd expect. And Bob is over here just starting and it's hard for him. He's, you know, he's, he's sweating like crazy. And I remember I've always taped shots on my video on my iPhone where I'm just recording him doing his close-up and thinking, please, I hope this movie, we get a chance to make it because what I'm seeing here is so special. Um, but back to the bus. I'm sorry. I'm just excited. Uh, um, we're on the bus and we were supposed to, you know, we did the whole lead in the, the musical video part with all the music and, you know, he's the guy, the bullies are getting on the bus and now we have to go to the first punch and he eats the first punch. It doesn't quite work for him. And after, I think, you know, three shots in, I'm seeing Bob start to relax. He starts to get a taste for it. Like, yes, he knows he's doing, it's all supportive. I'm seeing the people behind, cause I'm in the bus myself with a little tiny monitor and we have, you know, the crew and some of the producers are uh, um, sitting behind. And, and I remember just seeing their faces. I'm seeing these people are lighting up. Just, I'm feeling, I saw the BDS footage and this shot, one of the early moments where I'm just sitting there like a little kid, like, yeah, working but 
I got home that night. It's Friday night. We're all tired. It's, it was cold in the bus. I had like 15 layers of clothes. Where'd you shoot real and quick? I threw them over. This is Winnipeg. Got it. This is Winnipeg. You know, where, where they're so proud. They call it Winterpeg. And they also brag that in the winter, it gets colder than Mars. So uh, it was not, that's the most difficult part of the movie was, was the cold. And I'm a Russian, so I should be accustomed, but I'm not. Uh, not to that kind of cold. We get to, I get home. I take all these clothes off. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there in my shorts. And I've wrote Bob the shortest email. Because, you know, we love to exchange. We don't really keep it too short. But that's the short one I wrote. And I said, Bob, you're a fucking action star. And that's, that's you know, that's how I felt just even leading up to it. But that sealed the deal. The first action scene, first shoot. It, it just made total sense. So watching this, I watched this with my, um, my 15-year-old who was wanted to see. Knew, knew I had the screener, was over the moon to see it, kept bugging me, and then just ate every, we ate every minute up. I think it, don't tell any of the Oscar contenders, I think this is the best film I've seen during the pandemic. Um, here's the thing. It feels like an action film I've never seen before. It feels re-energized. Uh, it reminds me, of what Nicholas Winding Refn did with like 80s crime films and how he reinvented and reinvigorated those with Drive. Um, what did you do here? I feel everything feels like you could hang, every shot feels like you could and hang it in a museum. The editing is fast, clicky. It uh, really, it's, it's, it, even your accents, when he pulls out the kitten and he's smoking, something, something I've never seen in an action film, such a great punchline. Did you storyboard, you and your DP, every single shot of this movie? Because it feels, everything feels intended. There's nothing wasted. I'm, uh, I'm, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It means, it means a lot. It really does because it's, you know, you always think and you want everything to work as 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 planned. And this was, frankly, what you're saying now is is exactly what we were going for. So thank you. Uh, to start off, my um, my dad still loves movies, and we go to the movies all the time. We used to. And at a certain point, I think ten years back, the you know adult storytelling kind of you know went towards streaming and, and TV, and and um, I have trouble taking my dad to the movies because just not much we can go watch. And if the first film I made for a 15-year-old me, this movie I was making for my dad. So the fact that you enjoyed it with your son, it's, uh, you know, uh, the best review on this movie I got, I got the early cut or with an unfinished cut without all this, you know, all the bells and whistles. I showed it to, to my dad in the summer in the pandemic before flying out to finish it. And his review of Hardcore back in 2016, 15 in, in Toronto was, he flew out and I was like, dad, dad, what do you think? And he said, well, I understand why it took you this long. That was his whole review. And it's fair because it's not his type of movie. With this one, I saw how excited he was to watch it. And I said, what do you think? At the end, he's like, it's good. I'm like, what, like four out of five? He's like, no, that's a, that's a five. And I was like, that's it. Mission accomplished. At this point, it's, it's, uh, that, that, that's one of the happiest moments of my life. But um, in story, regarding the storyboards, what I did was before flying out to Winnipeg in September, September the 1st, I was there 
for prep. We only had six weeks to prep the movie, which to me was horrifying. I prepped music videos for two or three weeks. So it's, you know, pretty crazy. But I had a month and a half before that. I got my two storyboards artists uh, that I always use on my commercials and music and everything I shoot in Russia. And I said, guys, I, I want, you know, let's find the time. And we worked seven day weeks. There was two of them. We change, they change every day. And by the time I flew out of Canada, uh, and by the time the producers arrived a day or two later, the whole office was covered with this whole movie, the storyboards, like a So you, you storyboard pretty much the whole movie. Everything, everything, everything. because my previous one, there was not a single storyboard. Hardcore was improvised. Uh, and it was interesting, but I never wanted to do it again. I wanted to do the antithesis. I can't pronounce that word. Antithesis. <clears throat> the opposite of that. Yeah. Uh, antithesis, thank you. Um, I wanted to be calm. I wanted to be thought out. I wanted to be premeditated. And that's what we did. When uh, uh, Pavel arrived, uh, Pavel, DP Papa Gajelski, uh, you know, I was always a big fan of his from, uh, from Hereditary onwards. And I remember talking to him and saying, look, we're going to be making, it's an action film, but we're going to make it special. We're going to make it. Um, I said to him the same thing I said to Bob and Derek when we started rewriting the script. I said, guys, this is a South Korean thriller made in America by a Russian director. That's what we're going to do because South Korea, this was pre-Parasite, right? So it's a little, you know, not everybody was like so hot on South Korean cinema, but Derek obviously is because he's seen everything. Bob's seen the most important ones. And I remember we watched Bittersweet Life. I said, look, it's a different film. But if you look at it tonally, there are similarities in the sense that there is a darkness in the character and a lot of the conflict stems from within. And that's what makes it so watchable. And not many studio movies have the main point of conflict as coming from inside the lead. Uh, which is also another interesting thing for me that, you know, we get a chance to kind of go against all the expectations. Um, at the same time, keeping it, you know, a blog, it's supposed to be a summer blockbuster. August 14th was the first release date. So that's what I said to Pavel. I said, we're going to think about it. We're going to figure it out and we're going to make it look good. And we're going to make it feel like an adult film, like a, the kind of not, when I say adult film, because in Russian, I'm just translating from Russian, but not adult as in porn, but adult as in a movie that, you know, people who, don't necessarily enjoy CGI spectacles can enjoy. Um, so when Pablo flew out, we sat down, we went through all the storyboards. I think there was about 2000 shots. Uh, we corrected uh, as we started getting more of a feel for the film. And, you know, we did a lot of testing with cameras. We shot on a red, which I haven't shot on for a decade uh, because that was the best test. It's just, I was like, I was, we did a blind test in the theater. We printed, you know, 50 different takes and we found the lenses and it was a red. I was like, okay, so it'll be a red. Um, and since we had such a great understanding of what we wanted to do, why, what every line in the film stands for and what every shot stands for and why we're doing it, it was so easy to change things in the fly. Because once you know all the rules that you've set, it becomes you know, a, a piece of cake to just change it. And that's what we did. We kind of had the plan and altered it when, when necessarily due to production uh, limits. Um, we had only, um, what was it, 34 days? to shoot a film um, by comparison. And this is something I, you know, I didn't tell anybody in America <laughs> until the movie was done. I said, okay, so we have 34, guess how many days it took to shoot hardcore. And I was like, I don't know, 40, 50, I said 123. And we could get a, yeah. I remember talking to the Russo brothers about this and they were saying how many days they had on civil war at that point. And I was thinking, yeah, we had quite a bit more. But my excuse was that because it was a brand new film language and, you know, you got to learn how to uh, crawl before you can run with it. 
and we learned in the fly. That whole movie was made without pre-production. Pre-production happened while I was writing the script. It was a month and a half of writing the script and pre-production for a film, and hence, you know, it uh, was not easy. Um, I had very understanding investors and teamwork, loved what he was seeing and he supported, which was, was very lucky. And I said that I never want to have this weird luxury again. I want to shoot knowing exactly how much we have, knowing exactly uh, our limitations, and we're going to stick to it and do it. And especially, you know, it's the first American movie. I remember Mark Fisher, our uh, line producer, was like, you're saying, Ilya, this is very important. You got to come in on time. Uh, this is, you know, this is, this is, you're going to be judged on this quite severely here. And um, very helpful because we finished the movie on schedule under budget. And I, was, I wasn't thinking, it was like, oh, it's a great big deal. But, you know, the guys came up to me afterwards and said, Ilya, it is kind of a big deal. Very good. Very good. I was very then proud of myself for something I never, you know, done before. Um, so um, I'm sorry. I think I just went a long, long wine and rant. I forgot what the question was. No, it was, it was in, and in, in you answered, it was, if you storyboarded this, you know, how well, it just feels like a very well thought out movie. Yeah. Everything okay. was intended. What about um, the editing? Was it always the notion, like in the beginning, when we see his life, mm-hmm. and it's told in these, this kind of, it's told in like a drumbeat almost. Um, um, that was, so let me talk about the cut of the film a little bit. Um, what we had was, the assembly would have been about one hour 47, a little under 150. Uh, the ending, the final version is about 90 minutes. And director's cut was about one, 140. And the biggest thing that happened was I, I was aware that in America, DGA, you have 10 weeks to edit a movie. And you can like lock everybody out and be like, no, mine. But I got all along incredibly well with all the producers, with David, with Kelly, with Braden, with Mark, with Bob that I think week five or six is a guys, let's have a look. Let's come in as a, you know, as a, as a, as one force. So uh, David and Kelly flew out. The guys, the guys watched on, um, watched on, uh, on fifth kind. And I got incredible tips from David. Obviously, you know, it's uh, two movies in a row where I have the lead producer also be a director who knows what he's doing, who's proven himself time and time again. And you got to be a complete idiot not to use, you know, these, these guys knowledge. Um, great, great tips. I, you know, financed the film as hard as I could in the uh, leading up to the director's cut screening for Universal. Uh, the screening went great. Uh, Donna Langley had two phenomenal points that I remember thinking there's a reason why Donna has been around and kicking ass this long because uh-huh. she was just, just perfectly on point with what we needed to do. And, um, we went back to Vancouver to keep editing and, uh, we had notes, which made sense. You know, I always hear, heard these horror stories about directors, foreign directors coming in and having a horrible time and saying, oh no, I'll never work in Hollywood again. I hated it. The creative juices were killed and yada, yada, yada. And I was thinking, well, whatever happens here, look, I'm a hired gun. I've never done this before. Let's see if I can do it on these terms. And to my surprise, it was, you know, what, however long this movie took to make, we never had a conflict. It's pretty ridiculous. And I'm not just saying it now for the sake of sounding but it really was, that was the case. So Corona struck, we never got a focus uh, or a focus group screening and uh, NLA was supposed to have it March 18th. Also March 18th. Funny how that works today. Again, weird. 
So I think March 12th or 13th, Tom Hanks got sick, NBA shut down. Everyone was like, oh, this thing is serious. Ilya, go home. You know, I think Universal shut down productions and offices everywhere in the world. Everybody went uh, to work from home. I flew back to Russia. You know, I did the whole lockdown thing. And Leach, uh, Leach called and said, Ilya, uh, would you mind if I take a pass? I take a pass uh, and let me see if I can just spice things up a little bit. And again, I'm like, all right, let's see what happens. You know, worst case scenario, we'll keep some of the good stuff and, you know, I'll discuss some other things. And I get a cut that I think the biggest thing David did, and I'll be forever grateful uh, to him for this, he solved the second act in such a way where instead of a 15-minute diversion from Bob's character, it became a montage at the barbershop. And that was critical. Uh, that was critical for the film and... Our, what we see as a final cut is, and I talked to Kelly about Felina's Kelly, just so I make sure I, you know, I say it correctly and everybody gets their credit. I think what we have as a final cut is a director's cut of a producer's cut of a director's cut. That was, that's a long, long way of it. But uh, once David did his cut, I started working. Um, I flew out back to LA and I kept editing and editing, and editing. Uh, and I kept all the things that David figured out in an incredible way. And I find out some other things that I wanted to, I didn't have the time before. And I, you know, it was, like I said, best idea wins, let's do it. And I'm lucky that the people I work with were not just supportive, but incredibly respectful. Tell me about the release date because originally, of course there were pre pandemic hopes for this, but then now it's now. Now it's at a very interesting time when New York and LA are reopening. I think heading into this year, we were kind of estimating that, but we weren't sure. But what, tell me about the release date they selected. I've learned a while back that my job is to make the best damn movie I can with what I have. And then people who are in marketing, that's their specialty. And I've always loved the trailers. Uh, I think the guys did a fantastic job. And when I remember seeing the dates in the trailers and thinking, uh, well, this is, you know, is it going to be, uh, is it going to happen or not? And I was just, you know, fingers crossed, they won't just get dumped to streaming. And I've, I would completely overjoyed every time we'd be like, no, 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 we have a release date. We're moving to M. Night Shyamalan's date in February 26. Then we're moving to, um, then we're moving to uh, No Time to Die, April 1st. And then due to the Russian release not being perfect for April the 1st, uh, they've had lots of discussions as far as this is, again, this is what I just hear bits and pieces of, that they decided to move the Russian release up to today, March 18th, and the US to follow right after that. Um, so it's, I don't know whether they had inside knowledge about New York and LA opening, but it, in a way it feels like it kind of did. Again, I don't want to speculate, but it's, when I saw the Super Bowl, I was obviously, you know, I got a heads up like a month or two in front of that. I was like, now I'm pretty aware that Super Bowl is kind of a big deal in America. So the fact that the studio, you know, loves the movie and wants to support it and believes in it this much, it was you know, the amount of calls I got from, you know, my Russian friends out here who, uh, who were like, holy shit, on the Super Bowl, is the movie that good? I'm like, I think so. But less important, what I think is that the people who are now handling it think and they believe in it. So, you know, the fact that, you know, Michael Moses planned it out and they did it in terms of the release date, you know, we'll find out soon enough. 
but ultimately the fact that people who are going to have a chance to see in theaters are, you know, I'm just fortunate that's the case because there've been some good movies that went straight to streaming as we were all aware. And, you know, this film was made for theaters. The fact that we had the guys who work on Furious do all the sound mixes because Furious got moved up. We, we had the opportunity for that team. So we had the best of the best and we had time, which again, how often does that happen? Uh, so especially, you know, during this horrible year where a lot of people really struggled and people are like, how is Corona for you? I'm like, I'm going to keep my mouth shut because I have nothing to complain about. In fact, I feel bad about feeling good, if that makes sense. Tell us about um, your next project, Leaving Berlin. Um, hopefully, we'll be leaving Berlin. There's three things on the table. I don't know which one will, uh, will happen. Uh, leaving Berlin is uh, based on Joseph Cannon's uh, New York Times bestseller, Leaving Berlin, uh, set in 1949. Uh, it's a spy thriller with elements of, uh, of, uh, of romance, but the good kind of romance, the kind of the truthful, not just let's have a female in there to spice things up. No, it's a proper uh, heartbreaking story that I think can work really well. And I've been working on it for, well, I, I had the earliest dress before nobody. So it's been a long, long time coming. Uh, great story about a guy who, I don't know how much detail I should be going in, in here, but it's about a German Jew who leaves Germany right before the shit hits the fan, becomes a, a, a uh, successful uh, LA uh, film writer and then gets kicked out by Nixon for not Senator Nixon at that point for not you know divulging his uh, uh, communist uh, communist buddies the Red Scare and he gets kicked out and he has to go back to East Germany which is now run by the Russians and he's thinking it's going to be you know paradise and when he arrives he understands that well the Russians are horrible the CIA is horrible the Germans are horrible and basically it's him who's got to try and get out with the love of his life get back to the States, but it's got a great, the reason I really love the movie is that it's got something in the lead character that is missing in today's world. There's very few stories about people who have, what's the right term, a spine, who have ideals and morals and they stick to them. And even when it's much safer to, you know, rat out your friends and do and work for the governments, these people are like, no, I'd rather, you know, I'd rather die than and do the wrong thing, which it, to me is very inspirational. Uh, plus, it's got obviously all the you know, there's great action. There's you know potential for a great cast. I'm excited by it. And if, if it's not leaving Berlin, then I have a script that I've been working on for even longer time called The Adventures of Benito Valenzuela, which uh, is if you imagine No Country for Old Men was directed by Tarantino. So that's that's the it's it's, it's a lighter, but at the same time, it's got a lot to say about America. It's a lot about division. And how, because as an outsider, it hurts me. I grew up, my dad will always say, America is the greatest country in the world. And I always wanted to move there and I always wanted to make American movies. So this is all a dream come true. But I'm seeing, obviously, what's been happening. Uh, as I've been growing older, I've been noticing how America has been having, you know, issues that really shouldn't be happening. And I think it's mostly because there's a lack of empathy. And all three movies, this, you know, Adventures of Benito Valenzuela, Leaving Berlin and the script I'm writing now is a dark superhero film I hope to shoot in Russia with a foreign cast. Uh, they all have a central theme. I understood later that, well, I get the, the theme is empathy, is that we've got, we got to pump those empathy numbers up because that's not how we should be dealing with each other. So, um, Is yeah. Benita Venezuela set up in any studio now? 
No, uh, barely uh, a few people have, have read it. We've been very careful with it. Um, we're, um, it's not going to be an easy film to cast, I don't think, because it's, you know, there's four leads, there's four leads that are, uh, they need to be great actors. And it's not the cheapest movie in the world. It's a contemporary Western. Um, it's, the thing is, I know that this film can do well. I know people will go to theaters to see it because enough action in it, there's enough heart, there's enough, you know, proper real storytelling. But um, I'd be very excited if it happens. It's a, I think it's probably, the, it's the best unproduced script uh, that I ever had my hands on. As big as that sounds, as pompous as that sounds, I'm fully aware. I say it, I'm like, that's eh, kind of, kind of sounds kind of big, but you know, the people who have read it, they're quite big fans. I'll put it that way. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.